Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find me throughout the week at the Facebook page, and you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher uh, or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Okay, so let us start off tonight with some archaeology stories. Now, one of the coolest ancient cities uh, is Ketel Hayuk, uh, in what is now Turkey. And so this city was founded over 9,000 years ago. Uh, but it turns out that it basically suffered from a lot of the same problems as modern cities do, uh, at least according to new archaeological research. Uh, the archaeologists found overcrowding, interpersonal violence, and sanitation issues plagued the city, uh, which would have housed anywhere between 3,500 and 8,000 people at any one time. Now, this amazing city uh, developed only a few thousand years after the transition to farming. So, of course, previous to that, mostly uh, there would have been hunter-gatherers, and so they would have been nomadic, and they wouldn't have built up settlements. And so, just within a few thousand years of moving towards having settlements, they were already building these impressive cities. And so, research published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences noted that Katalhuyuk uh, very much reflected the woes of modern urban living. The people would have experienced what happens when you put that many people together in a small area for an extended time, uh, Clark Larson, the lead author of the new study and an anthropologist at Ohio State University, said in a press release. Now, the city was first excavated back in 1958. It sprawls over 32 acres, and there are up to 18 layers of settlement, which, of course, is why there's that fluctuation in the um, population. And so it actually would have been continually occupied for over 1,150 years. So, again, this is a pretty impressive place. You think, remember that, you know, the whole of the United States of America is only a couple of hundred years old. Um, and so these, this is a place where people lived for a very long time. Now, the new excavations, uh, which ended two years ago, had been studying plants and animals found in the area, as well as the skeletal remains of 742 humans who lived between 7,100 and 5,950 BCE. Now, their diet would have consisted of the sorts of things you would expect from kind of early modern humans, uh, wheat, barley, rye, some wild plants, and then also sheep, goats, and some wild animals. Now, of course, the introduction of foods such as bread and porridge uh, actually weren't necessarily a great thing in some respects for humans. I mean, obviously, there is a huge argument about the trade-offs between the kind of uh, what would actually be a Paleolithic diet versus what people consider it to be today, which is almost not at all what it was, um, and diets of later people who were more sedentary and uh, had developed 
agriculture. And, you know, there's a lot of things to be said for how, uh, when we first developed agriculture and when things actually started to form into these settlements and cities and things like that, initially health of people actually did go down. Um, but on the long view scale, we clearly are doing a lot better than our hunter gatherer uh, ancestors did in pre uh, historical times. So um, even though this definitely was a trade off initially, clearly it led to people having the time to do things like develop medicine and uh, create machines to do things that people had had to do by hand before. Uh, so, you know, there, there are things on both sides of the column, but uh, I think that overall the development of um, animal husbandry and agriculture can be considered a win. <laughs> um, but of course, again, one of those pitfalls was that it led to tooth decay uh, with as many as 13% of adults that they uh, were able to survey having dental cavities. And, uh, you know, that's, that's not so great. Um, one of the big things that I always remember is, um, people in Egypt had terrible teeth, uh, and it's because they lived in a place that was on the edge of a desert. And so basically there was sand in everything, um, cause you really just couldn't get around it. And of course, all of this early, um, all of these early grains, you know, this wheat, this barley, this rye, once they started grinding it, that was all done with stones. And so you would have stone dust uh, and little tiny bits of stone in your uh, bread and your porridge and all of these things. And so uh, it is kind of funny. I, you know, I, I'll buy it too. But like when I see, you know, in the store, you'll find uh, flour that is touting the fact that it was, you know, stone ground. And it's like, mm, yeah, there's a reason that, that we stopped doing that in some respects, because it actually uh, leaves you with potential dental issues. Um, but I'm sure that, you know, that stone ground weed isn't going to actually, you know, do too much to you these days. They probably have some sort of filtering system that gets out the bits of rock. Um, but it is funny to see, again, that sort of hearkening back to a time and a thing that in the balance wasn't all that great to begin with. <laughs> now, almost a third of the skeletons showed signs of infectious disease. Now, of course, this is another big one. Disease spreads easily among people in close proximity to both animals and, of course, other people. Now, sheep were an especial issue for disease. Uh, they carried a host of dangerous parasites uh, and potentially still do today. <laughs> and so uh, Larson notes that they are living in very crowded conditions with trash pits and animal pens right next to some of their homes. So there is a whole host of sanitation issues that could contribute to the spread of infectious diseases. Now, it also turns out that, like in other uh, cities that we know about, and even today in a lot of places, uh, the inhabitants basically, as they continued to live there, they actually got less healthy. Uh, latter 
people who lived there in the latter uh, centuries would have actually had to work harder to make ends meet. Uh, and so they show a greater amount of wear and tear. Uh, and the researchers think that it's probably because they had to walk further and further to get to fertile fields. And uh, also they experiment, they experienced a climactic change that ultimately would have led to the demise of the city. We believe that environmental degradation and climate change forced community members to move farther away from the settlement to farm and to find supplies like firewood, said Larson. That contributed to the ultimate demise of Katal Hayuk. Now, the other interesting thing that they found was that the city suffered from a plethora of interpersonal violence, which is, again, not surprising when you have a lot of people in a small space there's bound to be some issues. <laughs> and so we know that uh, there was definitely violence because of 93 skulls that were analyzed, 25 of them exhibited signs of healed skull fractures. 12 showed evidence of more than one uh, skull fracture that had been uh, had been partially healed over or fully healed over. And interestingly, both male and female skulls had evidence of violence, with most of the fractures being found in the back of the skull, suggesting that they were attacked from behind. Um, now, of course, we have no idea what that would have been about. Um, you know, there could have been some sort of ritual, uh, you know, violence that was not was clearly not deadly since, you know, these were healed fractures, uh, but was still some form of violence, or it could have just been that there were gangs, just like in any other uh, city throughout time where you have people who are in close proximity and some people are a lot more interested in uh, sort of the community than others. And, you know, that's still true today all over the world as well. And um, the other thing, though, is that despite this, the city actually shows that it did have a vibrant culture. And so uh, they have found wall paintings, clay figurines, obsidian mirrors, and uh, relief carvings in some of the walls as well. And so it was definitely not just a kind of uh, brutish and violent place. It was a city and it had culture just like any city today has. And some people lived in really beautiful places and some people probably lived in not so great places uh, closer to those animals and uh, those trash heaps. And so um, one of the other things that, you know, humans are pretty good at is creating artificial hierarchies. Um, and so some of that might have, have had to do with the violence as well. Um, and what was really interesting, and that we don't quite know exactly why yet, uh, but it turns out that we do know about one of their rites, uh, one of their funeral rites, which is that inhabitants of the city uh, would have been buried beneath the floors of their dwellings. So when someone died, you buried them underneath their dwelling. However, what's really interesting, and so, you know, that makes sense that you would put people... Um, underneath the floor of their dwellings uh in some you know respects it makes sense 
But when genetic testing was done on skeletons found in the same dwelling, they actually found out that they weren't genetically related. And so the researchers aren't quite sure why this is. Uh, and so it will warrant further study. It may turn out that those actually weren't uh, the inhabitants of the building. Um, you know, there's any number of reasons why that could be. They could have been, um, you know, slaves or uh, sacrifices made initially to, um, you know, christen the building with good luck, maybe, um, you know, and that's a lot, just a wild speculation off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, there could be other reasons. And so that's really interesting because, you know, it seems like we know other places where people were buried under the floor of their dwellings, uh, in a ritualistic manner, but to find that none of them were related, that's weird. Um, and so obviously, you know, you can have a couple that aren't married, but if there's more than are, that are married, but obviously not related genetically, but then to find more people who are then not genetically related to those people would be a little bit odd. So that is still a mystery. And um, again, that's always sort of a good thing, bad thing uh, when it comes to this sort of archaeological um research because you can figure out really cool and interesting things and just be blown away by how amazing people were in the past. And then sometimes you find something that you're just like, I literally have no idea why that is. <laughs> and we may never know because these people lived so long ago compared to us that we just may never ever figure out why it was that they did that. And, um, you know, I think that's a little bit sad, but also a little bit interesting to know that there are still these deep mysteries out there that we may just never know the answers to. Um, but yeah, so let's stay in that general region. And so in a, in Iraq, a city was recently discovered. Um, and so basically what happened is that the waters that had been behind the Mosul Dam uh, reservoir, basically that reservoir began to dry up. And so then it basically, uh, as the waters uh, descended, a city rose up from the uh, floor of the reservoir. And so archaeologi archaeologists have dated the site, uh, which they are currently calling Kamune, uh, to the time of the Mitanni Empire which ruled parts of Syria and northern Mesopotamia in the 15th and 14th centuries BCE. And so the ruins include a palace with walls preserved up to 22 feet high. The palace included chambers that once would have been decorated with painted murals. Only three other sites from the time period contain Mitanni palaces, and all of those were found on the outer reaches of the empire. This is the first site to be found in basically what is the center of the kingdom. Now, the waters in the area of the dam were first uh, low enough that the city was glimpsed in 2010. Uh, but of course, it still took time for the waters to go down enough that they were actually able to be excavated. And so Hassan Ahmed Kasim is the co-leader of the excavation and an archaeologist with the Kurdistan Archaeological Organization in Tiko, Iraq. And so um, he was in charge, again, um, the co-leader of this excavation. 
Now, the palace would have actually originally stood around 65 feet from the Tigris and would have overlooked the river with the rest of the city lying to the north. But of course, as with many rivers, the Tigris has since moved uh, and been moved, um, and so it's not exactly right on the riverbank anymore. Um, eight of the rooms were partially excavated, and some of them were paved with slabs of fired brick. Now, Mitali Mitani palaces were also known to be covered in painted plaster, and it turns out that the remains of vivid reds and blues uh, have been found in the current excavation. Now, again, few examples from uh, had previously been found. So again, this is a really exciting find, uh, and that's according to Ivana Pulges, uh, the other excavation co-leader, and an archaeologist with the University of Tübingen, uh, which is in Germany. Now, the palace also featured 10 clay tablets inscribed with cuneiform, which is, of course, one of the earliest forms of writing. And they're actually being translated currently at the University of Heidelberg in Germany. And so one of the tablets suggests that the site is actually the ancient city of Zakhiku. And so uh, it might be that we can actually find out exactly what this city was, which I think is pretty darn cool to be able to actually know what the actual inhabitants of the city called it. Now, interestingly, historical records show that the city was actually still occupied in around 1800 BCE, which means that the city would have stood on the shores of the Tigris for at least four centuries. Again, these are really long-lived places. Um, people lived here for, for long for long periods of time. Now, the empire fell when Assyrian ruler Anad Nirani, uh, Nirari, I should say, uh, sacked the capital city of Taidu. Uh, he sacked the capital. He had everyone basically, uh, unfortunately, murdered, and he actually sowed the area with salt, uh, according to the records. Um, you know, and that's something that you often hear, but you don't, uh, as a kind of, uh, you know, the, the ultimate spiteful kind of act. Um, but you don't really think about people actually having done it very much, but apparently according to, uh, the records, he actually had the area sown with salt so that nothing would grow there, uh, in future. Now, um, few remnants of the empire have been located as we keep mentioning. And so the, the location of Taidu is actually still uncertain, which makes this find, uh, quote, one of the most important archaeological discoveries in the region in recent decades. Um, and that was from Kasim in his statement. Uh, and so, yeah, that's really cool to find this whole city just kind of having emerged from the water um, and to be able to find it in such good condition is really exciting. Um, because it's always great to be able to sort of find out more about these uh, civilizations that we know very little about. Um, and I think it's really interesting. I, I'm i not sure that anyone else finds it as interesting as I do, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but I just love thinking about how these people lived these rich lives in these beautiful cities thousands of years ago. Um, it just kind of blows my mind. And uh, yeah. So anyways, <laughs> um, 
let's stick with archaeology for one more story, but this one's from much, much, much more recent times. <laughs> and so uh, researchers from Binghamton University uh, in New York, obviously, the Museum at Bethel Woods and the Bethel Woods Center for the Arts have conducted a series of ground surveys at the site where Woodstock occurred almost 50 years ago. Um, so it, it's going to be the uh, anniversary literally just around the corner. Um, I forget exactly what day it is, but it's, I think it is in July. Um, and so the area was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 2017. Uh, but nature has been taking over much of the area. And so, um, people have really decided it's time to get some, uh, surveyors in there, um, to do some ground, uh, surveying and make sure that important information isn't lost, uh, not to development, but to things like natural forest growing back up. Um, and so last year, the team found the exact location of the stage uh, where all of the, you know, greats would have uh, done their performing. This year, they explored the Bindi Bazaar. And so Maria O'Donovan, the project director and an archaeologist at Binghamton University, notes that the Bindi Bazaar was a meeting place where transactions, which included trading and bartering, in addition to selling, and cultural interactions took place. And so for O'Donovan, it exemplified the informal, freewheeling spirit of the counterculture, she said in a press release. And so the team began with an original 1969 map and a series of archival photos of the festival. Now, the area where the bazaar was located is now a forested region, but the team was able to find the location of 24 vendor booths and 13 other important landmarks. Uh, much of it was marked by stones that had been stacked up, clearly uh, by human beings. Um, it was clearly indicative of human activity. And so what they actually ended up finding, uh, surprisingly, was that the booths had been set up in a haphazard manner, contrary to the design of the map. Our research demonstrated that the reality of what occurred at Woodstock was not captured by the preliminary plans, said O'Donovan. Archaeologists located 24 potential vendor booths concentrated on one side of the Bindi Bazaar area and not distributed as on the 1969 plans. This is more evidence that the festival took on a life of its own that organizers could not control. Now, of course, one of the interesting things they didn't find uh, was much evidence of drug use. However, the researchers suggest that this is most likely due to the type of surveying that they were doing. So basically, all they were doing was uh, surface surveying, basically walking around and looking at things. Uh, they might have been doing some ground penetrating radar. I don't even think they bothered with that because it's still relatively uh, new enough that most of these things are still on the surface. Even if you've got forest growing up around it, you can still see the stacked um, stones and things like that. So um, I think that most of it was literally just walking around and kind of looking at uh, the indications of where things would have been. Um, and of course, they were also looking only in this one small area where the uh, Bindi Bazaar would have been. And it's, you know, a very large area overall. Now, of course, it might be weird to think of archaeologists working at a place where, you know, 
something happened less than uh, 50 years ago, at least squeaking in at the moment. Um, but contemporary archaeology can often discover things that contradict mainstream history and media. Uh, it can also help interpret modern phenomena such as migration and refugees, uh, the human impact on the environment, and the use of urban spaces. What we produce is an interpretation of daily life and activities which is not often covered in most historical documents or contemporary news reporting, notes O'Donovan. Um, the work at Woodstock helped was helped with the development of has helped with the development of interpretive trails at Bethel Woods, and that actually opened uh, in this past May. Uh, so uh, a couple months ago, it opened up. So now you can actually go there, and there are actually interpretive signs based on what the archaeologists found. Now, of course, the other thing about this sort of uh, historical archaeology work too is one of the big problems with until very recently, uh, with knowing things is that you are much more likely to know about what kind of the top tier people are doing, uh, based on historical, uh, records and things like that. Um, but archaeologists can often learn more about what everyday people were doing through, uh, you know, doing these excavations of people's actual homes and the places where they would have worked and things like that. And so we've been over the last, you know, 50 years or so able to tell a lot more stories about regular people rather than just what we already knew, you know, sort of kings and queens and uh, the aristocracy were doing. We've really been able to cover, recover um, a lot of the lives of everyday people, which I think is much more interesting um, than what the royals were doing. Um, I think it's still much more interesting than what the royals are doing. Um, I may have mentioned before that I don't really enjoy the uh, sort of uh, fawning that we tend to do over the British royals uh, here in America. Um, you know, I, I often snidely make the remark, like, didn't we fight a revolution not to have to care about them? Um, but anyways, um, so yeah, I think it's really important to do this kind of um, contemporary archaeology in order to learn more about, A, people who that we might not learn about otherwise, but also, you know, to kind of prove some of that histori history, because sometimes, you know, history is written by people. And people sometimes have their own agendas, or they just don't remember things properly, or they leave things out. And so um, to be able to go back and have that uh, historical register, um, or that archaeological um, evidence in order to kind of compare it to the historical register is very important. All right, so it is time to take a break. So we are going to do that. And then we will uh, come back and we'll switch gears and we'll talk about some sort of uh, skepticism and uh, conspiracy stuff for a bit, and then we'll see if we have some more time. So do stay tuned uh, to uh, Evidence-Based Radio, coming back to you in just a few moments. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires, and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can, too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. 
It's time to ask Mr. Green from the Sierra Club. Thirsty in San Diego asks, Hey, Mr. Green, should I buy my beer in bottles or in cans? Well, Thirsty, I'm grateful someone finally went beyond the paper versus plastic quandary to a new meaningful dilemma. As with that old standby, it's a tough call. I could suggest that you purchase your suds in returnable kegs. This might be frowned upon by those who look to Mr. Green as an apostle of moderation. Thanks to kegs, Mr. Green would personally opt for bottles because they usually contain better varieties of beer and because manufacturing glass creates less pollution and requires less energy than making aluminum. Since glass is a much heavier material, however, the additional fuel used to ship bottles outweighs some of the benefits of making them. Aluminum also has a leg up on the recycling end. About 45% of beer and soda cans get recycled, as opposed to 20% of glass containers. Both percentages could be greatly improved if more states implemented bottle deposit laws, a fine, practical idea that the beverage industries are doing their damnedest to fight. Ask Mr. Green and learn a lot more online at sierraclubradio.org. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the, it's the end of the world as we know it. It's the, it's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. Hey, it's Dio from the Enviro Show, which is the Valley's only local radio show devoted solely to environmental issues right here on WXOJLP Valley Free Radio. That's right, and I'm Glenn reminding you that we're at 103.3 FM and streaming live at valleyfreeradio.org every Tuesday from 6 to 7 p.m. And not so live on Thursdays at 2. And since it's the end of the world as we know it, why not spend your last hour with us? Exactly. We will help you cope with the end of the world without resorting to drugs or Facebook, even though we are on Facebook. And online at enviroshow.wordpress.org. Remember, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. and Thursdays at 2 p.m., got it? Yes. Sure, humans can be a little weird at times, but take it from me, I'm a dog. And a person is about the best thing that can happen to a shelter pet. So if you want to learn how you can be that person, get down to your local pet shelter or visit the shelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Hello, this is John Hodgman, resident expert for The Daily Show with John Stewart and author of More Information Than You Require, speaking into a small machine representing WXOJLP Northampton Valley Free Radio found on your radio dial at 103.3 frequency modulation. That is all. The Lilly Library is filled with adventure and wonder for kids and adults of all ages. Lilly Library in downtown Florence lends books and movies to everyone. They offer free parking, free Wi-Fi, and two-hour sessions on Internet-connected computers. They also offer extensive programs for children, including story hours, clubs, and activities for teens, as well as adult programs. The library is open Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. Find out more at lillylibrary.org. It's important to make sure your family has a plan in case of an emergency. We talked to this family to see if each of them knew where to meet if they were not together when something happened. If a natural disaster happened and we were outside the home, we would all meet at the park. That's our meeting point. I meet with our neighbor's house because she is my mom's good friend. We all have a meeting spot, which is a bus stop. Is your plan any better? To learn more about making an emergency plan for your family, go to www.mass.gov slash MEMA. Brought to you by the Ready Massachusetts U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Ad Council. And we are back. Okay, so like I said, we are going to switch gears completely. And so we haven't kind of talked about conspiracy theories or skepticism uh, very much lately. And so uh, there were kind of a series of loosely affiliated stories that I found for this week that I thought would be interesting to talk about. 
And so um, one of the big ones that kind of comes up periodically is uh, this idea of whether or not plants have consciousness. Now, uh, I hope I'm not the only one who has watched the entire series of um, the uh, series um, In Search Of, which was, of course, uh, with Leonard Nimoy uh, back in the 70s. And um, it's quite a trip. If you have not watched it, uh, you can find it on YouTube. And it's quite fun. Um, but of course, he does a lot of, you know, it was the 70s. And we were a lot more interested in some of these uh, more out there ideas. Uh, there was a lot of people at Stanford, for instance, doing some um you know, research that today we kind of look back on with uh, sheepishness because they were kind of uh, snowed, so to say, uh, by some people who claimed to have uh, extrasensory perceptions that they really didn't. And uh, one of the things that was really popular at the time was this uh, was Carillion uh, photography, which was basically, um, it was supposed to basically take pictures of something's aura. And uh, really all it does is it uh, kind of maps the electrical impulses. Um, and so, uh, but one of the things that they would do is they would take a leaf, they would put a leaf down and they would take a picture of it. Then they would cut a piece of it off and they would take a picture of it again. And you would see that where the um, piece of leaf had been, there was like a shadow. And, you know, I mean, it was very silly, but people really bought into the idea that, you know, this showed that there was some sort of uh, connection that, um, you know, leaves had this aura. Uh, and another experiment, um, also back in the 70s, I think, uh, someone hooked up a plant to basically a lie detector, uh, which of course is supposed to uh, detect kind of um, you know, changes in emotion and things like that. And the uh, lie detector would move and it would, when things were done to the plant. And uh, uh, that was another thing that's fairly easily explained by the fact that, you know, plants are reactive. Uh, and so they definitely react to different things that happen when you are, uh, you know, if you try and do something like, uh, set them on fire or something like that, you know, there's going to be a chemical reaction, there's going to be an, a reaction, and that would register on this detector. And of course, it's even it even comes down to people who swear that talking to or singing to plants does something specific that uh, plants that aren't talked to or sung at don't get. And so uh, there are tons of ways in which this kind of idea of um, plants maybe having some form of consciousness uh, has kind of played out over the years. Now, I don't want to uh, doubt that plants are amazing. Everything in nature is completely amazing when you really think about it. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And they do amazing things. And so, uh, you know, Plants have shown abilities such as computation, uh, communication, recognizing overcrowding, uh, creating defense measures, and of course, other signs that could indicate intelligence if you uh, read it a certain way. But the problem is, is that just because they have intelligence doesn't necessarily mean that it, this requires consciousness. Now, some 
people do obviously believe that. And so uh, the field of plant neurobiology has kind of sprung up in the last uh, 10 or 20 years. And so uh, this includes evolutionary ecologist Monica Gagliano. Uh, and she has definitely suggested that plants might have a form of consciousness. And so uh, some of the experiments that people uh, in the plant neurobiology uh, realm have done is one of the things that uh, the one that I always do actually remember uh, having read about recently is that they would drop plants uh, repeatedly. Um, and so basically, I don't remember exactly the uh, experimental setup, but it was supposed to uh, teach, quote unquote, uh, the plant to stop curling up their leaves. And so, um, you know, there are different reasons why this could happen. Uh, one of the other ones that they've done is teaching them, quote unquote, again, uh, to spread their leaves in anticipation of a light source. And so while these things are could possibly be true. Again, that doesn't require consciousness. It just requires uh, chemical signaling, the ability of, um, you know, plants to do the kinds of things that they already do as a matter of course. And so many other plant biologists have been dubious of these results. Lincoln Taze, a biologist from the University of California at Santa Cruz, notes that while plants might have something approaching intelligence, again, that doesn't require consciousness. Since the plant neurobiology group emerged back in 2006, claiming that plants have their own nervous system and many of the same features of consciousness and volition as animals, it has been the subject of a veritable feeding frenzy in the media, not seen since the publication of Secret Life of Plants in the early 70s, uh, Taze told Gizmodo. Now, the thing, though, is that there's actually new work by neuroscientist Todd Feinberg and evolutionary biologist John Mallet, uh, who have recently described the specific neurological requirements for subjective awareness. And so they suggest that vertebrates, arthropods, and cephalopods all have the basic neurology for consciousness. However, Taze and his colleagues use this criteria to instead specifically exclude plants from having this basic neurology. Feinberg and Mallet have advanced our understanding at the biological basis of consciousness with studies that suggest that in animals at least, consciousness did not evolve with the first appearance of a nervous system, but with the evolution of a brain with a threshold level of functional specialization and complexity, Taze noted. Such threshold brains, according to their criteria, are found only in vertebrates, arthropods, and cephalopods. Now, of course, there are still many unanswered questions, but the point we make in the article is that Feinberg and Mallet's analysis makes consciousness in plants highly unlikely. Now, again, it's not to say that they don't show signs of intelligence, but there's a difference between signs of intelligence and the emergent properties of consciousness. And so pretty much everything that plants do can be explained as the product of genetically programmed behaviors that have developed via evolution. 
And so, you know, I've seen some crazy things. Uh, you know, there's a um, wild tobacco plants. They will actually change the shape of their plant of their flowers if one kind of pollinator isn't available. They'll change the shape so that it then attracts a different kind of pollinator. And you say, well, how is that not something that's a conscious act? Well there's a whole way in which that could be a cascade of chemical reactions that say if you're not getting pollinated at a certain point that this is released that changes the shape of the plant and it doesn't have to be conscious it could just be that there is a genetic component that says if x happens or if b doesn't happen then do y um and that is something that you know all sorts of organisms do that don't have actual consciousness. There is no evidence that plants require and thus have evolved energy-expensive mental faculties such as consciousness, feeling, and intentionality to survive or to reproduce, the authors wrote in their study. Plant development and behavior can be regarded as a series of unintentional consequences emerging from internal and external signaling networks that have evolved through natural selection. And of course, it's also important, though, to note that while they don't necessarily exhibit consciousness, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be treated with respect and protected as much as anything else. And one of the things that the authors note is that it's important to not try to imbue everything with consciousness because there is something to be said for the way that we treat organisms that do actually have consciousness and that there might be an argument to treat them better or differently than organisms that do not have consciousness. And so it doesn't serve them to try and suggest that basically everything out there has consciousness. And of course, it is obviously important to keep our minds open about all aspects of nature, but it's important not to allow our feelings or expectations to color our our conclusions. And so, yeah, it might look really interesting that this kind of, um, you know, that a plant has a reaction when you tie it to a quote unquote lie detector. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean the same thing it does when you tie it to a human. And so uh, we need to be careful to kind of make those kinds of direct uh, comparisons because it's just not the way it should be. All right. So let's move on a little bit now and let us move on to, unfortunately, one of my least favorite kinds of anti-science conspiracy theory. Uh, I refuse to even call it pseudoscience because it's not. It's just anti-science. And so let's talk about uh, the anti-vaccine movement. Public health officials have basically had enough, uh, which I am very happy for. And so uh, they have put out, some of these uh, public health officials have put out the Salzburg Statement on Vaccination Acceptance. Uh, This has been endorsed by the World Health Organization and researchers across the world. And it calls on institutions, uh, all sorts of things from search engines and social media to uh, governments to you know, health officials across the world to forcibly stop the spread of uh, misinformation and to be more vigilant about enforcing 
um, required vaccinations. And so Scott Ratson, co-author and founder of the International Working Group on Vaccination and Public Health Solutions, noted that the statement was partially inspired by the uh, WHO's recent decision to call out declining rates of vaccination as a major threat to global health. For the first time in the history of the World Health Organization, vaccine hesitancy is a top 10 priority. This reluctance or refusal to vaccinate, despite the availability of vaccines, threatens to reverse progress made in tackling vaccine-preventable diseases, Ratton said. And so the group wants to fight on all fronts, social media, uh, they want to encourage laws preventing most vaccine exemptions, and to encourage better messaging from doctors and health officials. The need for health and state agencies to take action is part of the arsenal to support community protection, Ratson said. We have seatbelt laws with enforcement and fines. We need to develop similar approaches with vaccination to normalize the importance of vaccination for community protection for oneself, family, and community at large. And so I think it's really essential that we work on this. We really need to bring uh, vaccine vaccination rates back up. Uh, the recent outbreaks with measles show the huge danger of lowered vaccination rates. Uh, and so basically, we've had over a thousand cases this year in the U.S., and that's basically more than we've had uh, in any year registered in nearly 30 years. And so we're basically bringing back things that had almost been eradicated from this country. A new evidence-based, broad-based, and targeted communication campaign with a name such as Safe Vaccinations for a Healthy America could send a clear signal of commitment to help parents and families understand the vital importance of protecting their children with vaccinations, Ratson said. Now, of course, this would require a concerted effort, um, and I'm hoping that we will actually be able to get that um, from the CDC or uh, the FDA, some uh, government agency. But we at least know that some of the states are taking this on, uh, this threat seriously. So New York has just uh, done some things in California, um, which has also been the site of recent measles outbreaks, um, have both tightened restrictions on exemptions. And there's some other states that have done that. Now, of course, New York's rules are, have just passed, but California passed laws beginning in 2014. And we're now seeing that this has had a positive effect on vaccination rates in the state. The rate had bloomed to 9.8% in 2013 of unvaccinated children, but by 2017 had dropped to just 4.9%, which is a big win. Uh, that's a good reduction. I mean, obviously, we'd like to see that at, you know, maybe 2% or something like that, because we really... Um, there is, there is a certain population that won't be able to get vaccines. Um, and that's, you know, people who are immunocompromised, people who are allergic to things that are in, the, in vaccines. We're never going to get 100% of people to be able to have vaccines. That's just, you know, a given. Um, there's no doubt that there are people with legitimate health concerns. It's just that most of the people who are uh, keeping their kids from having vaccines now, those children don't have legitimate health concerns. Uh, they've just been scared by this hysteria and um, pseudo craziness that suggests that, uh, you know, vaccines are not completely safe um, for the vast majority of people. 
And so, yeah, I think it's really important that we are much more vigorous about uh, kind of messaging about this and really getting people to understand that all of the dangers that they have imagined about these or have read about them, um, that these have been lies and uh, that have been overblown and things like that. And so it's really, the fact really is that vaccines are one of the sort of top 10 uh, <laughs> things that have happened to increase longevity in uh, humans. And they are a vastly, vastly, vastly better idea than exposing your children to diseases that they could be protected from. And so, yeah, I think it's very important that we really start pushing this even more. Um, and unfortunately, we might have to do it more in the states than at the federal level, but um, I think it's still important to keep trying to work on it. Now, another major source of sort of pseudoscientific hysteria, uh, but which is much less dangerous, uh, is one of the conspiracy theories that I've always thought was very weird, um, but seems pretty persistent, is of course that NASA hasn't actually sent anyone out into space, and corollarily, of course, that we didn't actually land on the moon. Now, one of the arguments that I often hear from these sorts of conspiracy theorists uh, is that they put forward the fact that astronauts could not survive the large amount of radiation that astronauts are exposed to. However, a new study published today in Scientific Reports found no association between radiation exposure in space and an increased risk of death from either cancer or cardiovascular disease, uh, which, are, which are kind of the two things that you would expect to see from radiation exposure. And so they looked at both astronauts and cosmonauts and really didn't find anything. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that longer exposure to ionizing radiation won't affect astronauts. It simply means that most astronaut missions have been close enough to the protective magnetic field of the Earth that they have not caused more permanent damage. Um, but missions to, say, Mars and objects further out into space do still pose a significant risk. Now, the study by Ronald Robert Reynolds and colleagues from Mortality Research and Consulting, Inc. in California performed a statistical analysis of publicly available historical data. The study included 418 people with 301 astronauts and 117 cosmonauts. It looked at NASA, NASA astronauts uh, since 1959 and cosmonauts since 1961. Now, the average follow-up was 24 and 25 years, respectively. And during that period, a total of 89 deaths have occurred, with 53 astronauts and 36 cosmonauts having passed away. For astronauts, 30% died of cancer and less than 15% from heart disease. For cosmonauts, it was 50% died of heart disease, with 28% dying from cancer. Now, that might seem like a lot, but it's actually not significantly tied to a common cause like radiation exposure. And so having that large amount of heart disease in cosmonauts is not quite uh, all that surprising, uh, given what we know kind of of um, the health habits of Russians in general, even if they are, uh, you know, 
cosmonauts. Um, and so uh, the researchers note that if ionizing radiation is impacting the risk of death due to cancer and cardiovascular disease, the effect is not dramatic. Uh, and they concluded that in the study. But again, uh, they were also clear that this represents, quote, historical levels of radiation. And so future missions will likely have a greater impact on space travelers. Uh, that's actually kind of one of the reasons why I'm not particularly excited about manned space travel to Mars, because it's just so uh, not safe at the moment. Um, but it does show that the work being done in orbit right now isn't having that great of an impact on our astronauts, which is good news. Um, I think that that's very good news that the people that we have working in, um, you know, on the ISS and things like that and doing these important space um, experiments that are happening, that those people are actually going to be okay. That actually makes me feel a lot better because, you know, I think it is important to protect those people who are working in uh, orbit. And so, yeah. I think that we do have to really consider when we send people out into deeper space, because right now we're not prepared for that and they will have to develop some sort of um, extensive uh, shielding or something like that. And again, that's another reason for the whole, like why it's harder to go into space with, we've talked, I've talked about this extensively about, you know, shielding for electronic systems that are a lot more sensitive to ionizing radiation than the old fashioned stuff was. Okay. So let's quickly talk about one more story. Uh, last week we talked about the new planned mission to Titan that has just been announced. Uh, but a new article, um, a new research paper has suggested that one of the best places we might find light, life is actually on the vast ocean hiding beneath the ice of Saturn's moon Enceladus. Now, this ocean, uh, the researchers have concluded, is around 1 billion years old. And so researcher Mark Nouveau of NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center thinks it's the perfect age to have life. And so he uh, discussed this during a talk at the 2019 Astrobiology Science Conf Conference. And he and his colleagues used data gathered by the Cassini spacecraft, uh, which spent an entire 13 years orbiting Saturn uh, to calculate the age of Enceladus's oceans. And so it turns out that Enceladus has hydrothermal vents. Uh, which is the word I was groping for the other week. Um, I can't remember if it was last week or previously, but one of the weeks I was trying to think of hydrothermal vents and I just couldn't come up with it. Um, so he says that uh, it's very surprising to see an ocean today. It's a very tiny moon. And in general, you expect tiny things not to be very active, like a dead block of rock and ice. But not only does it have hydrothermal vents, which scientists now think are a likely place where life on Earth may have begun, but it also has carbon, nitrogen, hydrogen, and oxygen. And so these elements combined with time are the perfect mix for life to emerge. And so they went through around 50 simulations and found that the ocean is probably just around the right age. But of course, this is based on a computer simulation. And while the data from Cassini is definitely real, it is currently complete speculation as to whether or not this really represents the reality under the ice. But part of the 
thing that they're trying to do is to learn more about Enceladus before we maybe send a mission there uh, in the future. So hopefully we will learn more about Enceladus as the years go on. Uh, but that is, in point of fact, all the time I have for tonight. So I am going to leave you for this evening. Please do stay tuned for uh, Civil Politics coming up next. Hang on for just a moment. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.